Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Always On EM, a podcast about emergency medicine from Mayo Clinic. My name is Venk Bellamconda. I'm excited to host a show for you with my friend and talented colleague, Dr. Alex Finch. We try to bring you great discussions on relevant topics with world-class experts every first of the month. We would hate for you to miss any of our chapters, so take this very second to subscribe or follow our show. Otherwise, there's always a chance you'll miss amazing conversations like the one we're about to share with you. This is the September 2023 chapter, and as we are recording this, kids are going back to school and the traditional summer vacation is ending for most of the United States. Also, American football season is gearing up and we wish you well in your fantasy seasons for everyone who is playing. Most of all, though, we hope you enjoy today's expert guest. She is Dr. Quelo Prabhu. She is Associate Professor of Medicine here at Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and is an attending or consultant physician in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology. She received her medical degree from the University of Mumbai and completed medicine residency at the University of Cincinnati in Ohio. She then did a fellowship in gastroenterology and hepatology here at Mayo Clinic before joining the staff. She has served on several committees within the American College of Gastroenterology and is a reviewer for several journals related to gastroenterology and an editorial board member for the Journal of Inflammatory Bowel Diseases. She is frequently an invited speaker around the country on a variety of related topics and has authored over 60 publications in her field. Welcome to the show, Dr. Nina Coelho Prabhu. Hi, Venk and Alex. Thank you for having me. Please call me Nina. Take us through what you would tell a medical student about how to approach the patient that you're suspecting has GI bleeding. Sure. So I think the first thing that you want to think about is you see a patient who comes in, um, you know, in the emergency room in your case, or if there was someone that a, a medical resident was seeing on the floor, and you want to really understand what their symptoms are. So what, did they actually vomit blood or did they just cough it up? Is there, if there's blood in their stool, what color do they think it is? And I often find using simple terms that the patient may understand is much more helpful than asking them if they had melanoma or hematochesia. Right? So I will often say, did it look like red jelly? Did it look like, um, you know, like you vomited up something that's coffee grounds? And really explaining to the patient in layman's terms will help you understand that. So the first is what are they actually presenting with? And it's presuming they're relatively stable. You can take that history. But then it's important to get a little bit of antecedent history that's really close to the episode. So what happened before that? Were you ill in any way? Did you have an, uh, did your stomach hurt? Did you have you had any pain? Have you had any fevers? Have you been vomiting for the last few days? So oftentimes, for example, a Mallory Weiss tear is missed because we don't get that history of vomiting. We only ask them when they actually had the blood. But it's important to get all those other stories. And then, of course, when you're thinking about upper GI bleeding or actually even lower GI bleeding, because AVMs or arteriovenous malformations can bleed with NSAID use. And so understanding, asking patients about that 
but also specifically giving them names because most people don't know what NSAIDs are. So I will use a, a bunch of common names and ask about that history. And then you should already be thinking of it if the patient has other comorbidities. So if they have known arthritis, so they've just had surgery on, on a joint, or they've had, um, you know, if, the, if it lists fibromyalgia or some other reason why you would think, well, that patient might be taking NSAIDs, that's something that you should look, think about even before you go in. The, the criteria, for example, when I get called in the middle of the night with a bleed and the fellow's giving me, you know, a 15 or 20 minute history. I'm only interested in a few things. One, the most critical ones are, are they anticoagulated or not? Um, aspirin doesn't really bother me one way or the other. But very often we forget to ask about the DOAX. And so are they anticoagulated, yes or no? What's the platelet and INR? What's the hemoglobin, but more importantly, the change from previous? And then obviously, are they hemodynamically stable or not? It's so funny. I, I would thought, you would want more of that history, but I'm also thinking, can we cut to the chase? The yeah, <laughs> it's 3 a.m. <laughs> yeah. I do seven days of call straight. So <laughs> by Wednesday and Friday to Friday, so by Wednesday night, I'm like, okay, what are these four things? Because that's going to determine if I come in now or if we can wait until the morning. The morning. Yeah. Um, and, and some of the things you're thinking about, you know, cirrhosis, yes or no, but sometimes they're undiagnosed. So if someone has a really low platelet count, and then you can think, then you go down a different pathway where you're thinking, well, the platelet count is low, but is this now, do, are they in DIC, are they infected, or is this underlying cirrhosis? So then you might look at the liver enzymes or delve more into the history. And so trying to figure that out is, is what I would say are the best places to start with. Unfortunately, in GI bleeding, an exam is not really that helpful. Uh, in general. I mean, if they have pain, obviously, because then you're thinking about, is there an ulcer? But an ulcer that causes pain that you can palpate is likely quite complicated. And so that's unlikely. Oftentimes, they'll have fullness if they have a stomach full of blood. Um, diverticular bleeding is painless. So again, they should have no pain. If they have left lower quadrant pain, you're thinking more of diverticulitis. And maybe if you've had enough diverticulitis, you could have a little blood or you're thinking more of left-sided ischemia because now they have pain and they're passing a small amount of blood. They don't have those large, you know, bright red hematochesia kind of bowel movements. And so that's sort of trying, so the exam is not terribly helpful other than obviously understanding their vital signs, are they orthostatic, et cetera. Speaking of the exam, how do you view the value of fecal occult blood testing and the digital rectal exam? So I think there's... They're the two completely different ones. I think a rectal exam is incredibly important. So the incidence of hemorrhoidal bleeding is 12 to 20 percent of all admissions. That's pretty high. That's yeah. almost one in you know one to one in five or six. And so you have to do a good rectal exam. Um, if they're older patients and they have significant amount of uh, you know comorbidities or. A, on anticoagulation, they can have significant bleeds, five, six, eight units of blood loss from a hemorrhoidal bleed. So if you don't look, you may not find it. Um, and sometimes you'll just see them dripping. If they're internal, it's harder to tell, but you should definitely, you know, part the uh, buttocks and really look at the anal canal closely. Sometimes deep fissures can bleed as well. So that's the other, a rectal exam is really important. And if you don't see anything abnormal, it's still important to do a rectal exam to just see is there blood in the vault? Is it dark in the vault, uh, you know, on your glove or is it completely brown? That is helpful. What is not helpful is the fecal occult blood testing because oftentimes there is trauma. The test is highly sensitive. 
And if you have an anticoagulated patient, just simply doing the exam can sometimes cause enough of a trauma that you might have a little bit of blood on the on the test, turn it positive. And nothing would change my opinion on the on whether to do a procedure and whether the patient needs to be admitted based on a fecal occult blood test. So you're not really adding any value to the decision making. Mm. I think the fecal occult blood test is really important for patients who are outpatients, they're stable, they have chronic iron deficiency anemia, and you're trying to work them up by doing stool guaiacs. That's the patient having a natural bowel movement, collecting it in a hat and smearing it on there. That's not a traumatic procedure. That's their normal. Now, you could still have hemorrhoidal bleeding picked up there. But the point is that we, in general, will use that in, in gastroenterology after a negative EGD and a negative colonoscopy when we're looking for occult small bowel bleeding because of that. 20 feet of small bowel in between. We don't use it in any other setting. And so in the emergency room, absolutely not necessary. Okay, it's possible that some of you may still be skeptical about giving up the stool guaiac test. If that's the case, maybe some literature may help convince you. Dr. Drescher et al. from the Connecticut Department of Emergency Medicine published a great literature-based review of fecal occult blood test use in the ED in five different situations, trauma, anemia, syncope, hypotension, and before administering either anticoagulants or thrombolytics. Their review is published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine 2020, and you can find the full citation in the show notes. After looking into it, the main takeaway is that it's unreliable in our patient population and seldom added any value to the clinical care. In case you think only the EM literature speaks this way about the stool guaiac test, Dr. Benji Matthews et al. from Regents Hospital in Minneapolis published an article titled Fecal Occult Blood Testing in Hospitalized Patients with Upper Gastrointestinal Bleeding in the Journal of Hospital Medicine as part of a series of articles called Choosing Wisely, Things We Do for No Reason. This publication also provides a literature-based review of stool guaiac, which concluded that this test should not be used to affect management in the majority of situations. Finally, If you're still not convinced that this test is inaccurate and not worthwhile, I will leave you with the work of Dr. Gavin Harewood et al. here at Mayo Clinic and published in Mayo Clinic Proceedings 2002. Him and his research team gave participants blood to ingest, so they knew that there was blood in their enteric tract, and then they performed stool hemocult testing. Of the 42 patients who had known blood in their enteric tract, Only 11 were detected by the hemocult. Okay, let's get back to the discussion. That's incredible because I feel two things. One, I feel like I might not actually get the bed I'm trying to get. If I haven't haven't done this thing, I'm going to get a question at the end. Did you do the test? And so that's incredibly helpful. And also, I feel lazy. I feel like it's this thing I'm supposed to do. And if I didn't do it... I'm a, I'm a lazy doctor, so... But, you know, you've done all of it. You're just not smearing it on the card. You're exactly so right. So you absolutely do a rectal exam. Yeah. We teach all our fellows. Um, you know, we've. I teach my GI fellows, no one should escape you, you without a, a rectal exam during your three years of fellowship. Doesn't work so well in esophageal clinic. When <laughs> they present for good and they're like, Dr. Coyla said you really need to have a rectal exam. <laughs> but all the first year fellows get that drilled in. You have to do a rectal exam. And so I think if you do that part, the FOBT is not necessary. 
you you said nothing would change your decision to admit or discharge. What if the the test was negative? So a patient came in with uh, dark and tarry stools and you tested a negative. Would you be worried about a false negative or uh, alternatively a mimic of bleeding? Sure. So I think there are mimics and they can it can be turned positive by iron uh, uh, intake and so even if the patients had a large stake a few days ago you might have that um, or, or obviously if they're on iron I think the decision to dismiss would be more based on if they were if you were suspecting an upper GI bleed more like the Glasgow Blatchford score and so that you're using their vitals you're using their the overall picture and so simply having you know I wouldn't necessarily dismiss them if they were unstable uh, vitally but still had a negative, because then you're thinking, is there infection or sepsis or something completely different? So I would then ignore the black tarry stools, because if the hemoglobin is normal, that's probably okay. So, and again, usually, if they've been chronically anemic, they might have a negative. You know, a small bowel bleeds can be intermittent, and so they might be bleeding and be anemic, and they may actually be telling you the truth about the black tarry stools three days ago, but whatever's brought them in today is not from that. If you're like Alex and me, you've not heard of this score before. This score was originally proposed by doctors Oliver Blatchford, William Murray, and Mary Blatchford in The Lancet in 2000. They worked at the University of Glasgow in Scotland, hence its name, Glasgow Blatchford Score. They used a retrospectively collected data set with some inconsistent criteria for entry to derive the scoring system in the first place, and then prospectively validated the score in a separate group of 197 consecutive adult patients coming with upper GI bleeding to three hospitals in West Scotland. In this validation group of 197 patients, the positive predictive value was calculated at 58%, negative predictive value at 98%, the sensitivity was 99%, and the specificity was 40%. The score incorporates hemoglobin, BUN, blood pressure, sex, heart rate, melena, recent syncope, liver disease history, and heart failure history, with each having different weights. It is designed to feel really comfortable when the score is 0 or 1, that it is safe for your patient to not need admission because it's unlikely they're going to have a need for transfusion or procedural intervention to stop their bleeding. The strengths of the initial creation of this score are that it was derived and validated in different cohorts, and that the validation cohort was a prospective inclusion of consecutive patients from that region. I do have some concerns that the score, which was initially derived in data from 1997 and validated from data in 2000, may be out of touch with current medicines like the DOACs. Also, the system of delivery of healthcare has evolved so much since then, such as the inclusion of electronic health records, and it's unclear to me how that would impact this. With that said, this scoring system has been evaluated several times over since that time. For example, it was compared against the Rock All score by Dr. Chen et al. in published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2007. In this study, they used a retrospective collection of data from a single tertiary care center in Taiwan and unfortunately only entered patients after endoscopy because that was needed for the Rockall score. 
But in this single center retrospective data set, the Blatchford score continued to show a sensitivity of 99%, specificity of 25%, positive predictive value of 75%, and negative predictive value of 96%, again with the outcome being the need for transfusion, intervention, prolonged hospital stay, death, all of these very valuable endpoints. Several more studies have examined this issue as well, and the last one I want to mention um, outright is a study from the BMJ in 2017 by Dr. Adrian Stanley at AL. They evaluated data from six large centers in multiple continents and gathered 3,012 prospective patients with upper GI bleeding. They compared the Rockall score, Glasgow Blatchford score, and another score called the AIMS 65. They also examined the optimum risk thresholds within the scores and felt that the Glasgow Blatchford score was the most effective at predicting which patients were going to have complications of their GI bleeding, showing a score of less than or equal to one as being 99% sensitive again, 35% specific. Lastly, the 2021 American College of Gastroenterology guideline on upper GI bleeding and ulcer-related bleeding suggests that ED patients be classified as very low risk for the outcome of hospital-based intervention or death if the Glasgow Blatchford score is zero or one, and that this can be used for discharging patients to the outpatient arena. They do say this is a conditional recommendation based on very low quality of evidence. So maybe one of you listeners are going to test this and implement it outright in your health system and let us know how it actually fares. But until then, it looks like we might have something that we could use, but we should be thoughtful and make sure it fits with our clinical judgment as well. Let's get back to Alex and Nina. When you're seeing a patient and they do have hemorrhoids, I I feel like the vast majority of patients who I see, have that's hemorrhoids. the case. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm trying to narrow down the source of the bleeding. Yeah. Is it typically just if I see it bleeding, I can attribute the bleeding to that? Or um, if they have bleeding and have hemorrhoids, how do I not anchor on the, the easy thing? That's a really good question. I'd say you can really be sure of it only if you see it. Okay. Because hemorrhoidal bleeding is bright red, but so is diverticular bleeding. And so, and both would be relatively painless. So I'd say that that's not enough of an indication to just say, well, it's hemorrhoids, you can go home now. Um, you balance out the factors. So if they're not anticoagulated in my mind, and they have a little bit of spotting you know, but they're overly anxious, then that's okay. But if they come in with a hemoglobin of 7.5 and they're dripping blood, uh, that would some be someone you'd still put into the hospital. I'd admit that patient, probably prep them for a colonoscopy um, and go from there. If they were unstable, and we can talk about diverticular bleeding down the road, uh, you know, the new guidelines do recommend, especially when available, uh, CT angiogram. So then. I want to know more about this. I was <laughs> I was trying to read more, uh, and here at Mayo, we pretty routinely will get a CT scan, but I would love to hear more about that. And Interestingly, I don't get CTs unless the lactate is elevated. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, so you think, yeah. so that, because you're considering more ischemia. Yeah. But um, to accurately identify um, diverticular bleeding, so if you have a suspicion of diverticular bleeding, and even at Mayo during daytime hours. So, you know, if you're in a, in a smaller hospital where you don't have access to a CT, that's a, a totally different issue. But a triple face CT or a CT angiogram will show you that diverticular bleed and will localize it. And that's really important because what happens, even if you don't send them to angiogram thereafter, it helps us to find the bleeding source much better than when you don't. 
so it, for diverticular bleeds, we've really moved away from, and the guidelines support that, from doing unprepped colonoscopy. Mm-hmm. Because invariably, the colon with diverticular is difficult to identify the true lumen, especially older people who have dense diverticulosis. They all, they're wide-mouthed sometimes, and they look like a colonic lumen. So if you're not well-prepped and you can't see what's going on, then you really have a high risk of perforation. Mm-hmm. And so in those, we still recommend a prep. Now, the data is controversial on whether you do a rapid prep. So you have put an NG tube, do a two-hour prep, and do a colonoscopy immediately so that they're flushing things out, or you might have a higher um, chance of finding it. Uh, or you put them in the hospital, stabilize them, do a slower prep, do it within 24 hours. That The latter is our practice. Um, I actually am just doing, I'm the lead author for a grade panel review for the ASG, the American right. Society of GI Endoscopy. We're rewriting the, our guidelines for lower GI bleed. But we are recommending that if you have, um, you know, we haven't finalized the, the guidelines yet, but the data supports if you have access to um, angiography to use it to guide your therapy. The ESGE, the European Society, does not advise that. So there's, there's, you know, it can go both ways. Let's talk about timing of that CT. Yeah. Could that be done in the hospital if they're being admitted? The closer to the active bleed, the better. Got it. Because okay. you'll see the extravasation. A large percentage of GI diverticular bleeds will stop on their own. Okay. And so at least if you, because we may go in the next day after a prep and we can't identify it. But if we know it's in the left lower quadrant, we're going to focus on that area even more than otherwise. Because oftentimes if they have pan diverticulosis, it's a difficult exam. The preps, even if they're prepped, are not great. Mm-hmm. So you have to really wash each tick out, uh, each diverticulum, and wa- and see where the clot might be. And if you know you have a general sense of localization, it's much better. If we get a CT angio and there isn't active bleeding seen, does that rule out the disease? So great question. It's not great if it, because you don't know if that's already stopped. So yeah. you would still do a, di- a colonoscopy. Yeah. Um, and there aren't real strong guidelines out there about whether you de- still have to do one or not. Our practice is that we would do it. Okay. Um, but our yield would be very low. So the positive value is there. Correct. The negative value shouldn't dissuade us from continuing. No. Yeah. And you would... Invariably, it happens in patients who are older, they're more unstable, so you're still going to admit them anyway. So we would still do a colonoscopy. When I was reading about this, this is a triple phase CT. Um, I read it doesn't need oral contrast. And so Mm -hmm. uh, we're doing this triple phase CT to try and see if there is a small amount of bleeding that then we can focus on. Uh, during our procedure, yeah. Because sometimes they might have ascending colon. You know, they'll have diverticulate throughout, but it's actually in the right colon, the bleed. And that really helps us because then we can get through the sigmoid and really focus on that area and see what we can find. Is this only for lower GI bleeding? Is there any benefit? Because a lot of times it's a little bit more vague when we're seeing them. There's, uh, I had somebody I admitted just the other day who the first stool was black and tarry, and then after that they were red and they were hemodynamically normal, so we were working through a variety of potential options. Yeah, so my general uh, take, and obviously you see them as f- you know the first step, I see them much later, but when I'm assessing uh, over the phone or if someone's consulting me, I'm thinking how unstable were they to begin with? So if they had that black tarry stool and then they started having a large amount of blood, but unlike your patient, now they're you know, blood pressure is 95 to 100. And then I'm thinking, boy, this might be a rapid duodenal ulcer bleed. Mm-hmm. And so that would, 
if someone called me and said, well, do you want to prep the patient or do you want to do an EGD now? My response would be, let's do an EGD first. Yeah. And then let's rule that out because the patient's unstable and having hematochesia. The patient's blood pressure is 130 over 80 and they're passing some red blood. is highly unlikely to be an upper GI bleed. So in that case, I'd say it's probably lower GI, prep the patient, and we'll do it more electively. And considering imaging as well, the other test I read about was a red blood cell scintigraphy. Yeah. Is that, I actually don't know what that is. I was reading in a, a sort of a, a review of emergency medicine, and I said, I don't know how I would order this test. You would never order that okay, test. Okay, that's, that's yeah. what I like to that's hear. That's the short version. Okay. They take tagged RBC scan, uh, they, they take your blood, they tag your RBCs, uh, and then they put them back in. And we see where that might be extravasating into the lumen. And it's, an, it's, it's not a very useful test. So we use it for patients who have obscure bleeding, significant bleeding, but obscure bleeding. But in the emergency room, you would never order a tagged RBC test. Not in the first hour. Yeah. In, an hour four, I can <laughs> get Or maybe if we were in the times when the hospitals were so full and they were here for a week, <laughs> maybe by then. But the GI consult service would guide you I like that. it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Also following up, would you ever ask us or think that we should involve IR to try and identify the source of bleed? Or if there's bleeding seen on CT, when do you call IR? That's a great question, Bank. So if you do a CT and there's, um, and there's active bleeding in the left colon, for example, but the patient is unstable and you're not really sure how fast you can keep up with that resuscitation, that would be a case to go to IR. Because remember, I can't go in until the patient's prepped. So even if you put an NG tube, it would take at least two to three hours to prep that patient, wash that blood out, and you already have a positive site on CT. So for IR, it's a straight shot. But if the patient was relatively stable, had borderline kidney function, you really didn't want to rock that boat, that's okay. Then you say you had a positive CT. We don't need to rush to IR. The patient's holding their own. We'll get, we'll get you know, stabilized, do a prep. That might be someone that'd come in sooner rather than later. I still wouldn't do it unprepped, but I wouldn't maybe wait 18 hours. I'd brew it within 12 hours. There's no guidelines on the timing of colonoscopy, uh, but the various studies that were done showed, do you do a colonoscopy for suspected diverticular bleed within six hours, six to 12 or 12 to 24, and the outcomes were all similar. So the only reason that you would do it, I would say that patients who are unstable really should go to IR, especially if they have a source. To send them to interventional radiology to find a source is not really uh, that useful because they have to have a significant radiation and contrast load. They have to put contrast in so many different vessels to try to identify it that that I don't think would be the best use of their resource. But this is an argument for the CT abdomen uh, to try and find the source. So stabilize the patient if we can, go to CT. If and the can. CT should be either triple phase or angio to really look at the blood, the vasculature. Okay. Not a standard CT abdomen pelvis because that wouldn't really show you, that might show you ischemic colitis, but wouldn't show you, if you were actively bleeding, I'd say you'd want a, a vessel assessment. Do you have a preference between those two? The triple phase is Whatever's available, than... no. Okay. Yeah. So we've been talking a little bit about upper and lower GI bleeding, but... Let's drill down on upper GI. So first of all, if I'm calling you in the middle of the night and I have a patient that that has had melanic stools and doesn't look like they're doing great but is fairly stable, what what is going through your mind as a differential and what types of things do I need to be accomplishing other than transfusing if necessary? Sure. So I think what's going through my mind is 
what potential risk factors could they have? So I think maybe a better way to think about it is anatomically. So I think about, okay, in the esophagus, what could they possibly have? Have they been vomiting? Could this be a Mallory Weiss tear? Those often will not present with overt vomiting too. They can present with melanoma because if they're not, if the patient is not a vomiter, the patient and the and the tear is lower down, it gets into the stomach, and they might present with melanoma or or sometimes even hematochesia if they're anticoagulated. That can be quite brisk. So you're thinking about that. You're thinking, okay, esophageal varices obviously is always on your mind. So you're thinking, what are the risk factors for liver disease? If you go into the stomach, the commonest is peptic ulcer disease, so 15 to 20% of the time. So have they been ill? Have they recently had a joint replaced? Have they recently been in the hospital and not on PPI prophylaxis? So you're thinking, it's, could this be a stress ulcer? Um, again, like we talked about, are they on, you know, using NSAIDs either prescribed or over-the-counter? And those are the big ones. AVMs, the other one is a dulafoy, which you really can't predict until you go into the stomach and you find a large clot. But those patients are really unstable. So that, that would not be a question of whether you're admitting them or not. And then, of course, in the duodenum, you're thinking, again, duodenal ulcer. Masses, much less likely to present with overt bleeding, but they can sometimes. It's usually esophageal cancers that will present like that. But they often first will present with dysphagia. And so for upper GI, we're defining that as above the ligament of trites. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. And uh, and the other thing is you mentioned the dulafoy lesion. I've seen that on an EGD report, but mm-hmm. I didn't know what it was. So the dulafoys are these aberrant arteries that for whatever reason, there's no cause to them. They will come up to the surface and it's an arterial, a large vessel arterial bleed. So there's no ulcer involved. It's just a small little nubbin of a red vessel if you catch it when it's not bleeding, but when it's bleeding, it's just pumping continuously. And they can be very significant uh, bleeds. Again, higher risk when they're already anticoagulated. So that's something you have to think about. Um, in the stomach, other than that, really, so the question here is, well, how do I know? Because my patient is there now. They have little melanoma, but they're really unstable. And I'm not, or maybe not very unstable, but somewhat unstable. I'm trying to decide what do I do with them? Do I put them in the ICU? Do I, are they okay for the floor? One of the things you can do is an NG tube. So I will caution you that if the patient has a history of cirrhosis um, and known cirrhosis, known varices, then an NG tube is okay if it goes in really easily, but otherwise you might have the chance of tearing something if it, but of course, when they present with hematemesis and they have, then you're presuming it's varices. So that's an easier call. But if there's no history of cirrhosis and you're trying to decide, well, is this upper GI or not? And where would they go? To me, obviously, the, that decision is driven in large part by the vital signs. But then also you can drop an NG tube. And if that's relatively easy and doesn't traumatize the patient, you can do an NG lavage. And if there's nothing coming out, then it's probably a duodenal ulcer, uh, highest likelihood, in which case you can put the patient on a PPI. Again, the decision for ICU or floor is probably based on their vital signs, but that'll give you a little bit of a better sense. If it's a gas, dulafoys are commonest in the stomach. You can get them even in the colon and the small intestine, but they're commonest in the stomach. If you bring back a stomach full of blood or your NG tube is full of blood, that tells me as the gastroenterologist, this is probably more urgent than something that can wait overnight. Because a duodenal ulcer, or even sometimes gastric ulcers, when they're not actively bleeding and actively streaming, 
there's more and more data coming out now that the PPI will heal a lot. Anecdotally, we know that. If you have a patient who's relatively stable, has a duodenal ulcer bleed, and you go in 12 hours later, it's starting to heal. But sometimes your patients will be a little bit later, and you'll say, oh, there's a clean-based ulcer, which if you had gone in immediately may have been not clean-based at the time. And that was actually studied in multiple randomized control trials, and there's some in there recently in the NEJM where they did within six hours or six to 24 hours, and actually within six hours had almost, a, they had no difference in mortality, but more complications when you did it sooner. Mm. An EGD. An EGD, because okay. you're almost like getting to it too soon. You know, you're mm. not give, if you give them PPI, they can re heal themselves to some extent. And, and that, but there was no difference in overall mortality. Just the, the complications were less. And so I think that's important to recognize what you're dealing with, but the acuity will help, the NG lavage will help this, me decide how acute this is. So if you go in and say, there's a, you know, I'm getting clots and red blood out of the stomach, to me that's different than, yeah, there's some coffee grounds or black stuff, because that yeah, she bled along some time ago, the body's already digesting it. But if it's red clot, that tells me this is someone we want, we're going to activate the team and come in now for. Uh, NG lavage, I, I haven't done one of those before. Is that just saline? Just what? tap water. Just tap water, yeah. tap Whatever water. Whatever the patient would drink, yeah. Okay. And I'm just putting in... Room temperature. You could put in 60 to 100 cc's. Just okay. swish it around, pull back. pull back. And it's really to see if... Because if you have an organized clot, you may suction early initially and get nothing back. Mm. But if you put some water in, it'll give you sort of a sense of what... You know, loosen that up. That's really cool. We used to do NGs for almost all suspected upper mm -hmm. GI bleeds. And it seemed to fall out of favor. Yeah. To where I haven't done it in several years now. Sure. Help me understand which patients... I should be doing the NG in yeah. versus not. So I'd say if a patient is really stable um, and you're going to admit them to the floor, I wouldn't do an NG because they're going to bu they've bought themselves an EGD one way or the other. It's not going to change. But in an unstable patient where you're trying to decide, or rather it would help me as the, ref as the endoscopist decide how urgent is this, the NG lavage would really help. Because if you say I'm getting blood, like I said, then this is really active. We need to hurry up. If it was not as much, but, but maybe you're in a setting where you have access to CT or you're in a setting where you have access to CT but you don't have a gastroenterologist on call, right? You're in an emergency room somewhere and you have a scanner, then that's important because if you can get a scanner in, in, in an unstable patient, I would do a scan. I wouldn't do it in a stable patient. But in an unstable patient, you scan them and you say, I can see extravasation. This is a patient I have to now send to a tertiary center immediately to get to a gastroenterologist, which we see often happening even here. We'll have referrals come in. They've had a CT scan at one of our satellite centers and it shows extravasation, the patient comes here urgently. If they're stable, there's no utility to imaging. So to repeat back our, our initial approach, we have a patient that we're sort of suspecting has an upper GI bleed initially, and we're breaking them into stable, unstable. On the one hand, there's patients that may go home, and you mentioned a, a scoring system I'd love to hear more about. So there's, there's that group, and then there's the patients that we're going to admit if they're just going to the floor, they're probably going to get an EGD. And, and the goal is really to start a PPI to start that healing process. Yeah. If they're going to the ICU, 
We're then thinking we need to make a, a game time decision. Do we drop an NG tube and do a quick lavage to figure out if it's actively bleeding? Do we get a CT and mm-hmm. try and figure out is there a source for IR if they're that unstable or to help guide uh, our proceduralist as to where the bleeding is occurring? Does that sound Yeah, correct? that's perfect. And in fact, I'd say if, suppose you did an NG and you didn't find anything, it was clear, but the patient is really quite unstable. That to me is a duodenal ulcer. And those can have, the, the ulcers in the duodenal bulb um, can bleed very vigorously. And so the, the, the branches of the pancreatic or duodenal and the gastroduodenal artery course very close to the duodenum in that spot. And so if you have an ulcer there, you could develop pseudoaneurysms and you could really bleed fast. So if the patient's unstable, and again, it's not as much of an issue necessarily at Mayo, because in Rochester here we have a GI bleed team. That's a dedicated service. It may be one of the only ones in the country. So most other places, you have a gastroenterologist who's also on call or service or hospital and may or may not be immediately available. For the most part, we are always available. I mean, we, we take call, but we're available and we have enough of backup to do other things. But if you're in a place where you don't have access to that, then I think imaging is important because there you're suspecting a duodenal bleed. And if you have a CT that confirms that either you send the patient somewhere that has GI or you send the patient somewhere that has IR. And so I think that's important to understand. Vink and I are developing an always-on EM score. And okay. always-on EM score is what do I need to do in the first hour of uh, resuscitating a patient. Mm-hmm. And if you have a patient with a suspected upper GI bleed, let's say you don't think it's variceal, other than blood, is protonics in the always EM yes. category A level one where that's what we're going to jump that's on? That's what you're going to jump okay. on. Okay, protonics. So multiple uh, studies, randomized control studies, um, looking at the dose of protonics and the, and the way to administer it. And uh, there's a clear benefit with IV protonics. So what happens with these patients and what does protonics do? Protonics decreases your gastric pH. Rather, I'm sorry, elevates your gastric pH. So your pH is acidic all the time. But in patients that are bleeding and have GI bleed, remember that they have not eaten. And so the longer that you don't eat, your stomach is still producing acid. So when you eat, it neutralizes that. And that's how stomach acid doesn't keep getting more acidified. But in patients who haven't eaten for that long period because they're sick, they're vomiting, they're not, they're sitting in the ER for a while until they get in, right? So they've been a long time without food. Now they're really acidic. And so that acid then makes the GI bleed worse. And so you, the studies looked at whether you give 40 milligrams IV PPI, these, this is old data, or 80 milligrams, and they showed that the best benefit was 80 IV push followed by an IV infusion until the patient has an EGD. Post-EGD, there was initially some controversy, newer data suggesting maybe in, in Europe, for example, the ESGE guidelines recommend 72 hours of IV PPI post-procedure. We often will not use the drip post-procedure, especially if we feel like we've gotten good control. We'll switch them to IV BID PPI for 72 hours, and then they'll be on PPI long-term until whatever they had healed, so four to six to eight weeks. But initially, we do. I recommend that if you had Two IVs. You give blood in one and ideally PPI. If you had a variceal bleed, you'd still want to resuscitate with, you know, not only blood, but whatever else you need, the patient might need. We talked briefly earlier about octreotide. So octreotide has not been shown in the acute setting to decrease any chance. That patient requires an endoscopy. 
So you stabilize them until we can get the scope down. Because really the only way to treat this would be to decrease. It does decrease. So the way octreotide works is it causes vasoconstriction in the splanchnic bed. And portal pressure is is venous blood coming from your intestine into your liver. And so when you have high portal pressure, because the liver is sclerotic, that blood flow is is uh, blocked, and that's elevated portal pressure. So by decreasing arterial flow into the splanchnic bed, you secondarily decrease portal pressure. And so that's how octreotide works, but it doesn't work immediately. In that patient, I may not necessarily, if you are strongly suspecting a variceal bleed, that patient may not need PPI. That patient requires resuscitation until we can get there and, and treat that with banding. I have learned so much from you today uh, because in my mind, a PPI is something that works kind of slowly and it's sort of We had those twisted yeah, in our Yeah, minds. we were actually oh, okay. totally debating this earlier and octreotide seems like something I would want to change a circulatory Sooner. issue and so I would get that started immediately. And I think if you have good access and things are going, probably why not start the octreotide, all things being equal. But it's so interesting because I... Uh, I, I would have thought the octreotide would need to happen immediately. And my PPI is something that I'm remembering as the patient is, is waiting to go upstairs. And I realized that's a much a really important uh, time-sensitive intervention. Particularly, I had no idea. You said we've gone in and after a couple hours we look and it looks like it's, it's a, the ulcer is already improving. I had no idea it worked like that. That's and in the time we're waiting for a band. I know. We could be healing yeah. this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. we... It works remarkably fast. Um, and so, again, if the patient's anticoagulated, you're still going to have other risk factors, you know, yeah. but for all things uh, otherwise being equal, the PPI is important. If you have someone who's really, who you know is variceal, though, and you have access, I would favor octreotide over the PPI. So start yeah. the octreotide first. The PPI is just going to heal whatever we therapy we apply. But that patient requires endoscopic therapy to really be effective. A quick question. Uh, our, our practice switched a couple of years ago, and in our order set, I don't know how to order medications manually. It's just the things that pop yeah. up when I when I pull up GI bleed. And I think it's 40 milligrams of protonics. And I, I heard you say 80 milligrams of protonics plus a drip. And we had, actually, we had stopped doing the drip a while ago. Is there an opportunity for us to improve there? Or? At some point, there was a shortage of PPI, uh-huh. IV PPI. And okay. that was sort of the time that the practice kind of changed to, you know, avoiding the drip and doing more of uh, boluses. Uh, but you know, the re- the literature re- that we've reviewed does show that IV PPI helps. Um, and so if you don't have access to a drip, that's fine. You give them the bolus and then it can be BID PPI. Interesting. But the, the point is, don't wait on the PPI to give it orally yeah. until the patient's able to take something because it doesn't work as effectively. Too. Okay. That's, that's so interesting. One other consideration that comes up in other types of bleeding syndromes in the emergency department is TXA. Do you have a stance on whether or not we should be considering TXA in this population? So what's TXA? Transit? Tranexamic acid. No, no, we don't use that at all, yeah. Okay. In follow-up about TXA, we went to the literature. There's the HALT-IT trial, which might come up in discussions or help solidify Dr. Coelho's stance that TXA likely doesn't have a role in the management of gastrointestinal bleeding. This study was done by Dr. Roberts et al. and published in Lancet 2020. It was a large, international, multi-centered, placebo-controlled, randomized controlled trial involving more than 160 hospitals in 15 countries. The study enrolled patients with significant bleeding who were over the age of 16. 
The patients were then randomized to either receive TXA, 1 gram IV over 10 minutes, followed by an infusion for the next 24 hours, or placebo. They used death from bleeding at five days as the primary outcome in the end, but initially had a different primary outcome, so changed it midway through, which is, of course, frowned upon. In total, they enrolled 12,009 patients. The TXA arm had 2.1% death rate at 24 hours versus 2% in the placebo arm, so 2.1 versus 2. At five days, the TXA group had a 3.7% fatality rate, and the placebo arm had a 3.8%. When we talk about 28 days, it was 4.2% versus 4.4% in the placebo arm essentially no benefit at any time point. They do report that there were twice as many thromboembolic events, however, in the TXA arm, with a number needed to harm of about 250. So the study endpoint was adjusted to favor the intervention and still did not show a benefit. There was also additional harm, so now we can say that we have a world expert saying they don't find benefit for this drug for this purpose, and we have an international multicenter placebo randomized controlled trial saying no to this drug as well. Let's jump back into the interview. Do you ever nebulize any medications to try and help? I feel like I know the yeah. answer, but I'd love to. No, just make I don't think we ever nebulize. Um, I mean, we use, um, we actually use for a different condition called eosinophilic esophagitis. We use, we used to, before we had butesonide, use uh, nebulized uh, medication, but we had to have them nebulize into their mouth and swallow it. But that was a long time ago. So no, we don't nebulize anything anymore. Yeah. There's a, popular emergency medicine blog that talks about resuscitation and it had brought up using erythromycin to increase gut motility. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was curious your thoughts. Is that something uh, after after the blood going in one side, PPI on the other side, uh, if I'm thinking of an upper GI bleed, am I going to try and get some erythromycin on board uh, before Uh, before you see them? Does that make your life better or does it not? Great question. So anecdotally, we always use erythromycin, right? When I was taught, we were taught, if you have a suspected upper GI bleed, use erythromycin. But actually preparing for a podcast today, I looked up the data and there's a network meta-analysis published last month that looked at patients with suspected upper GI bleed and did four kinds of comparisons. They looked at patients who got erythromycin versus placebo erythromycin versus um, um, rather NG tube versus no NG tube, erythromycin plus NG tube lavage versus nothing. And they found that erythromycin significantly improved uh, EGD outcomes. Wow. So, and erythromycin plus an NG tube lavage decreased mortality. Erythromycin plus NG tube lavage decreased mortality. The article that Dr. Coelho Prabhu is mentioning is entitled Erythromycin Improves the Quality of Esophagogastroduodenoscopy in Upper Gastrointestinal Bleeding, a network meta-analysis published April 2023 in the Journal of Digestive Disease Science with a lead author, Dr. Mohamed Aziz. Essentially, and the reason there is if you do it, like I said, if you do an NG lavage and there was bright red blood would push the GI physician to do it sooner rather than later. But the erythromycin really helps. So to give you a sense of the channel of our therapeutic scopes is uh, 3.2 millimeters. So in order to get an organized clot or anything through that is next to, is very hard. And so we do have a larger um, 
diameter scope called the clot buster that's its name <laughs> and the clot buster is is a great scope but the company that makes it is stopping to produce them it's a larger channel scope that we can attach a second suction to and really break things up but makes our procedure much harder the scope that particular scope for example is not available in most places so it's hard for for a gastroenterologist what they'll go in and see is a bunch of blood and then sometimes you have to abort because you can't break it up and if you're in a busy practice you know you're not going to spend two and a half hours because if you don't have a dedicated bleed team who has nothing else to do they're not they have a whole list of outpatients waiting and so it's hard to break that clot up but if you have erythromycin it's it just evacuates that clot now some people used to say well if you give erythromycin you're dislodging a clot that otherwise is holding steady and might be helping the patient but the fact is that you are there to do the most effective treatment with your EGD so if you're able to see better you're going to be able to treat better and so early erythromycin if you're suspecting an e- an upper gi bleed and your gi team tells you we're coming in you know, it takes us 30 minutes to set up if you have erythromycin on hand again we had the shortage a few months or years ago significantly that's gone so we have access to it now give erythromycin your your gi colleagues will thank you you had touched a little bit on this controversy in emergency medicine do i place an ng tube in a patient with hematemesis. Mm-hmm. And we often think about it in the context actually of our intubations, things that we can yeah. do, um, give an antiemetic, give the erythromycin, drop an NG tube, start suction to try and minimize the chance that I'm gonna lose That's my airway right. yeah. while, I'm, while I'm intubating. Um, and there's always this debate, is the, uh, could the NG tube uh, poke the bear and, and hit a, a uh, an esophageal varicine, uh, if it's present, later will I be judged and thought that I made something worse? Yeah. Uh, how? What's your you know general thought? If a patient comes in with an NG tube and there was variceal bleeding, uh, do you think that that's an error? How do you, how do you approach sure. that? That's a great question. Really hard to get data on, right? Yeah. Did, did the varix cause this? Or did the NG tube cause this? Or did something else cause it? But I think, practically speaking, if you have hematemesis and you're suspecting a variceal bleed, go ahead and put the NG in because the varix is already torn. You're not going to dislodge something that's on it. The higher risk is in patients who have recently been banded. Mm. So, you know, you have a patient... Oftentimes, the highest portal pressures and alcoholic patients who are actively drinking. And so you've banded them. They've come back now because about 48 to 96 hours after the banding is when the bands start to drop off. And so they might have an ulcer and that might be re-bleeding. But you're not really sure if you're going to knock more bands off by pushing the NG down. So in that acute, in the first week post-banding, if you had to do, if a patient presented again with hematemesis, I'd be a little wary about passing that NG down. Interesting. A little no bit, idea. not terribly. Yeah, but yeah. I would have had no no idea the that there was thing, an acute phase of that. The other thing to remember is if the patient has dysphagia at the same time, then it's preferable for you not to put an NG down because we do see NGs that get perf because they, they can't go through the dysphagic, the, the narrowed lumen. And so with increased pressure, especially if the patient has eosinophilic esophagitis or another condition that's rendered the esophageal wall a little edematous or weakened, then go right through that and into the um, into the mediastinum. And so we have seen NG2 perforations when they've been attempted to be placed in patients with known dysphagia. But what if the ED doctor 
documents that they were trying to place a drain into the mediastinum. And that was the That's goal right. of the procedure. <laughs> Maybe that was, they thought there was pus there. That's right. And no, just They just did a transesophageal yeah, exactly, route. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so overall, we've talked about placing a tube into the stomach. And really, we're going to be doing that in not every patient admitted to the floor. Yes. Our patient's probably going to the ICU who are unstable mm-hmm. and in the ones who we're suspecting upper GI bleed or in all our bleeders? Suspected upper GI. Okay. Yeah. So we have our upper, suspected upper GI bleed patient who I'm admitting to the ICU, consider my NG tube lavage. Yeah. Okay. A- again, not you don't have a high suspicion for cirrhosis. I wouldn't do it in a cirrhotic because... You don't need to. You, you know most likely. But if you're thinking, wow, is this a gastric ulcer or gastric geulofoy or is this a duodenal ulcer? I'm not really sure. That will help. Speaking of tubes going into the stomach and the esophagus, um, I've never had a chance to place a Minnesota tube. Uh, Venk, I don't know what your experience has been with that. I have also never placed one. Yeah. It's something that I have to read about all the time because every little bit has a different pressure and a, and a different volume. Oh. And uh, it's definitely something that stresses me out. I, I feel very grateful to participate in our cadaver lab. Every year we practice it. Yeah. Is there a benefit? Do you have any advice for somebody who's placing it for the first time? No, great question. I have only put one in in uh, 15 years. Um, I will take some out because they've been put in in other places. And I think it's a useful tool. Again, if you're in a place that does not have easy access to a gastroenterologist and the patient's exsanguinating, you have to control the bleeding. And and the, the idea behind it is just simply tamponade. All you're doing is tamponading the vessels and trying to... That might be a situation where you would push the IV octreotide too. Right, because you want to make sure that the patient, you're giving them whatever chance they have before the IV PPI, because you really want to decrease that portal pressure as much as you can. I'll tell you, in terms of putting it, the ones, the the issues we've had or we've seen over the years. The opportunities is, for improvement. <laughs> That's right. Let me rephrase that. I'll tell you the opportunities for improvement we've seen over the years are the uh, esophageal perforation Oof. and uh, necrosis from the pressure in the balloons being too high. So again, I'm no uh, master at placing these. Again, I've only put one in, and that was a patient who we couldn't control the bleeding in and was going for emergent tips. So it was just too much bleeding, and so we put the Minnesota tube in just to transfer them down to interventional radiology. Uh, But um, in general, it takes multiple people in the room. I would advise a team. You have the manual right there and really... uh, Take a few minutes to identify which balloon inflates which tube because there is a whole bunch of different little holes. They're not well labeled. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And I think as with many kits, the kit has so many pieces that it seems like we don't use. They just exist to make me think... What should I what be could doing I be with using this piece? With it? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so the only things you need to know are that the gastric balloon really should be in the stomach because that's where the perforation happens. When the Minnesota tube has not been inserted deep enough and you inflate the gastric balloon, which has a much larger volume and pressure, and you're not, so the best way to do this is you presume that the GE junction in an average size person is at 40 centimeters. In a taller person, you know, Alex, I can't see how tall you are, but you're probably 42 or 44. 
I'm probably at 38 or 40 because I'm average size. So you, you guesstimate where that might be, and you want to make sure that that Minnesota tube is put in at least 10 centimeters below that because you will not go through the – in a patient with a normal gastric anatomy, you will not go through the duodenum with it. So don't worry about perforating. It's not that long. So if you put it in at 50 centimeters in an average size person or 45 to 50, then you know that that gastric balloon is in the stomach. The problem is people put it in and you haven't taken the time to measure the length of the Minnesota tube. And so now it's at like 30 and you're inflating that gastric balloon right in the middle of the esophagus. Oh. And that's when it tears. So you you should be able to have a lot of give with your inflated gastric balloon in the stomach in that you inflate it and it should go up and down. Not easily, obviously, because it's an inflated balloon, but you should be able to move it. And if you're able to move it, that tells you it's in the stomach. The next step is to pull it up against the esophagus because really what you want is it for it to to apply pressure on the gastric fundus because that's where the feeding vessels are coming from for the varices. So that's the idea of pulling it up and your gastric varices, if that's where you're bleeding from, will be obliterated. But before you pull it up, you don't want to just inflate and pull because if you're in the esophagus, you'll feel a lot of pressure, but it's not pressure because it's snug. It's pressure because it's in the esophagus. So go down to, in an average size person, I'd say but around 45 to 50 Make sure in the stomach you inflate it there, pull it back up, and you'll see it snug. Then inflate the esophageal balloon. That's, That's so useful. Incredibly helpful. Obviously, neither Alex nor I have enough clinical experience with placing esophageal tamponade devices such as the Minnesota tube or Sangsteak and Blakemore tube to provide meaningful education for you. But our friend and dear colleague, Dr. Luke Wood, has come up with a set of rules called the Rules of 45 that really help to guide the procedure in a very memorable and hopefully effective way. Luke was kind enough to provide a recording from his home about how to do this. Thank you so much, Luke, for doing this. The floor is yours. The device itself, when you take a look at it, there's two balloons, there's four ports, and there's a ton of other stuff in the kit. A lot of it you don't really need. Uh, what you will need is a lure lock syringe, uh, typically 50 cc's, a couple of stopcocks, a couple of tr Christmas tree adapters, a manometer, a couple of plastic clamps, and McGill's forceps. But uh, when you open up a kit, you'll, there's going to be a lot of redundant equipment that you don't actually need that can just get in your way. Uh, know where your Minnesota tube lives. If a patient's rolling in with a massive upper GI variceal bleed, you don't want to be hunting around for this thing uh, as they're putting the patient in a room. Um, take a couple minutes, get to know your ports, take a look at this thing. If you have an open kit sometime, um, it can be helpful to kind of uh, get, get more familiar with the equipment. You're going to have two pre-plugged ports. Uh, these are really obsolete in, in the age of manometers. Um, leave them plugged. They come off at this weird kind of hyperacute angle. And uh, if they're plugged already, just leave them plugged. You're going to have a, uh, a gastric balloon port that you use for inflating. You're going to have an esophageal balloon port that you use for inflating. And then standing alone, you'll have your esophageal aspiration port and your gastric aspiration port. In a perfect world, we get a call from the ambulance that they've got a patient who's hypotensive, they're tachycardic, they've been having massive hematemesis for the last few hours, and they've got a known history of esophageal varices. So bust out your Minnesota uh, tube kit. Hopefully by this point you've taken a look and you know what you're dealing with. Uh, but before the ambulance actually rolls in, um, there's a couple of things you can do. Uh, open up the kit, 
put your stopcocks on the uh, gastric and esophageal balloon ports. Um, know how they work. If you don't know how, how uh, stopcocks work, familiarize yourself with this because uh, there's both inflating and deflating when you're actually in there. And if you don't know how they work, then um, uh, you can be useless. Uh, your next step is going to be to check your balloon patency. So dunk that uh, esophageal and gastric balloon in a bucket of water. And, uh, give them some air. Make sure you're not having any air bu bubbles leaking out. Um, you really want to make sure that uh, you deflate both of these balloons as much as possible. You don't want any residual air in either balloon because advancing it down the esophagus can be compromised if there's uh, any residual volume in there whatsoever. Uh, make sure your McGill's and your manometer are close by. So the patient rolls in. Again, hopefully they're intubated. Really, placement of the Minnesota tube is the crux and the most difficult part of the procedure. Why is that? You've got a floppy rubber tube. You've got a sharp angle dropping into the uh, esophagus, and it's a crowded house. There's an endotracheal tube in there, maybe some blood clots. So uh, this really isn't as easy as just simply placing an OG tube. Um, the first thing you can do to optimize your chances is uh, patient positioning. So put the patient's bed at 45 degrees. This is the first rule of 45s. I'll refer to this a couple of times, but number one is patient positioning. 45 degree angle, take your laryngoscope, uh, use that to elevate the tongue and the endotracheal tube out of the way. Try to stay posterior and advance your Minnesota tube as far as possible down the esophagus. At, one, at some point, you're going to kind of get some resistance. You might get some binding of the tube. Um, at that point, you can grab your McGill's uh, and try to use a sweeping motion to help coach it down into the esophagus. Uh, it can be useful if you ever get into a cadaver lab or a mannequin lab to uh, practice this sometime. The question becomes, how deep am I and am I deep enough? So uh, really to know that you're in the right position, you've got to inflate the gastric balloon a little bit. So you don't want to do that too early, calling an x-ray unnecessarily. And so really you should advance your Minnesota tube until at least 45 centimeters of depth until you start checking the position of your gastric balloon. At this point, you should not see the esophageal balloon whatsoever in the oral pharynx, but this is kind of the second rule of 45s. You need to advance your Minnesota tube until you're at least 45 centimeters at the lip. Once you're at this point, give that gastric balloon a little bit of air. You give it 45 cc's of air, and this is your rule number three of the rule of 45s. You shoot an x-ray and hopefully you see a gastric air below, bubble below the diaphragm. There shouldn't be any resistance when you initially inflate the gastric uh, balloon. If there is resistance, you're probably still in the esophagus. But once you have placement confirmed, you can go ahead and fully inflate your gastric balloon. You're going to add another 450 cc's of air. That's 45 times 10. And that's rule number four of the rule of 45s. Again, you shouldn't have a lot of resistance when you complete uh, filling up that, that gastric balloon. Next, you want to tamponade that GE junction by setting up traction. Some people use a football helmet. Most folks, in order to avoid the crowding with the endotracheal tube and everything like that, 
will use a liter of normal saline tied to Curlex, and then you hang that over an IV pole and uh, tie it to your Minnesota tube. This provides one kilogram of traction, which is the appropriate amount. Next, you're going to attach your gastric aspiration port to suction and decompress the stomach as much as possible. Clamp the gastric aspiration port and then attach your suction to the esophageal aspiration port. If you get blood here, that is the indication to go ahead and inflate your esophageal balloon. If you don't have blood at this point, you don't need to inflate the esophageal balloon. Keep in mind that the biggest risk with uh, Minnesota tube placement is pressure necrosis in the esophagus. So if you don't get blood aspiration from here, you don't need to inflate the balloon. But if you do need to inflate the balloon, you're going to go ahead and attach your manometer to your stopcock. You're only going to need to give it a couple of hand pumps until you get it to the goal pressure of 30 millimeters of mercury. Your maximum pressure in the, for the esophageal balloon is 45 millimeters of mercury. That is rule number five of the rule of 45s. By this point, you can go ahead and close your stopcock and hope that your endoscopy and your GI team shows up soon and they can definitively manage your variceal bleed uh, in the ICU or elsewhere. Uh, Hope this helps and good luck. Thanks. That was fantastic, Luke. Thank you so very much for doing this on such short notice and we really appreciate you. Hopefully we never have to do this, but I think everyone is better for having been prepared. Let's get back to the interview. Just to jump real quick, one of the other things we didn't talk about in upper GI bleeding are really rare sources, which is hemobilia and pancreatic uh, bleeds. And Tell so, me more. Yeah. I, th- I consider that in every case, but I'd love to, <laughs> to hear more about it in general. So I'll tell you that if you have patients, basically when you think about those causes, when do you think, well, maybe anyone that's had a recent liver intervention so they've had a diagnostic liver biopsy or they've had um, you know, transvenous portal pressure measurements done. They're often done as outpatients, but you've had a, a liver biopsy done or you've had recent gallbladder surgery or any kind of relatively recent surgery or if they have a history of a bile leak and now they're presenting with bleeding. Those would all be reasons why you might think, is there any reason why we might have a false connection between a vessel and a bile duct leading to hemobilia? For the pancreas, it's mostly uh, pseudoaneurysms that form in patients that have had pancreatitis. So if you're necrotizing pancreatitis. So if you have a patient who has a history of necrotizing pancreatitis and is now coming in with GI bleeding, you're always concerned about whether if the pancreatite neck the neck bank is still being treated, there could be a vessel that's eroded into the that cavity. And so now the, it's coming out through their mouth, but it's actually in there. And that would be someone you'd want to get imaging on. Both of these conditions, if you suspect hemobilia or you suspect hemosuccus pancreaticus, uh, imaging with vessel assessment is very important, so a CTA. And you will find, we, we do see these patients with bleeds, significant pancreatic pseudoan- artery pseudoaneurysms. They require to go to uh, they need to go to IR. You easily used so many words there that are <laughs> phenomenal words. Can we just review hemosuccus? So when bleeding comes out of the pancreatic duct, it's called hemosuccus pancreaticus. Yeah, I, Absolutely. I love your face. I will 100% put that in my next GI bleed chart. Considered... Yes. 
100%. Remember that I can't diagnose a fractured finger. So <laughs> this is my whole little world. Uh, I don't expect you to know that. And I'm sorry if I seem to be throwing words it's around. Wonderful. I love it. But really I just wanted wonderful. to make sure that that is something that if you're thinking about the patient's history, um, and the common one actually is liver biopsies. Okay. So we don't realize, but it's a blind procedure. Um, they can You can nick a patient's gallbladder if you're in that general vicinity based on where it's done, especially if you have an anterior approach to a liver biopsy. Uh, but even on a lateral approach, you can sometimes collect, connect and make a connection between the artery and the bile duct, and the patient will present with significant bleeding. Um, the other one, of course, is someone who's had an ERCP. So even up to three weeks out, if they're anticoagulated, they can develop a sphincterotomy bleed. So what you do in an ERCP to get into the bile duct is you make a cut in the papilla, and that cut has there's invariably a vessel in the base of it. And if you, depending on how deep you cut, that vessel may bleed later. So someone who's had an ERCP, the question you need to ask them is, is that your first ERCP? And did, do you know if they made a cut in your duct? Because invariably, that's how we'd explain it to the patient. We'd say, you know, we had to make a little cut in your duct, we put a stent in or something like that. But that's important because then that's a post-sphincterotomy bleed. And that requires endoscopy relatively urgently. I had no idea. Yeah. Although Alex considered all of that on his differentials before, no. I, I never Absolutely. did. Absolutely. Absolutely. Never. As part of my thorough history and physical. While, while we were going down the duodenum, I should have gone just a little further. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's that great. Yeah. Nina, is it okay if we transition to below the ligament of trites? Sure. The lower GI bleed. So for me, I see these patients as some are so stable mm -hmm. that we really can't mess it up. Yeah. And then there's the others who... I walk in and I can see blood coming off the bed mm -hmm. and to the floor. Yeah. Uh, take us through how you approach the really sick lower GI bleed patient. Sure. So I think if you're, you know, again, if there's hematochesia, uh, but the patient has no upper GI symptoms, they have no pain, um, and they really don't have, uh, if you have the luxury of a BUN, it's relatively normal with the normal creatinine. To me, that's all pointing towards a lower GI bleed. So I'm thinking, Okay, now where could this be coming from? If it's bright red and dripping, that's a left-sided colonic bleed or a really rapid diverticular bleed from the right, but it's diverticulate in my mind until proven otherwise. So diverticular bleed that is diagnosed on endoscopy or angiogram is 20% of lower GI bleeds, but suspected is as high as 35%. So basically one in three lower GI bleeds is gonna be a diverticular bleed. Whether you found it on imaging or colonoscopy or you didn't find it, if you found nothing else, it's probably a diverticular bleed. So that being so common, if they are sick, those would be patients I'd do imaging on first. It would help you guide what to do and also guide how acutely you'd have to do your procedure. So if you have active extravasation, the patient's you know, 70 over 40, they're on maybe a DOAC or they're on something that is harder to reverse. I know you have your uh, you know factors you can give, but the patient's 78 years old also has heart disease or had you know a stroke and really requires their medicine. That would be a patient I'd send to interventional radiology. I wouldn't necessarily wait for GI. If you have that cap capability, do that. That will treat it faster and more efficiently. If the patient's 58, you know, relatively, I mean, they're still unstable, but the pressure's 90 over 40, they're not on anticoagulation. That would be someone I'd say resuscitate, and you, even if, whether you have imaging or not, and then 
prep them and we'll come in and do a colonoscopy. But that would be someone I'd still put in the ICU. Absolutely. That's my judgment. I mean, you might make yeah. the eventual call, but yeah. Do you see a role for a general surgeon or a colorectal surgeon at any point in these patients? Yeah, great question. Not usually, not upfront. I don't call general surgery upfront unless they're post-surgical complications, in which case I really want them to be involved. And that's both for upper and lower. So if there's a, you know, within even two weeks post-op, uh, if the patient presents back again with what you might suspect is bleeding, that would be someone that I'd want to at least make sure they're okay with. I'll tell you that 99% of surgeons would say, go ahead and do endoscopy first. It's much less invasive and much more efficient, but it's important to get them involved. If it's a post-transplant surgery, it's a, a post-transplant patient and you're suspecting something like that, that's the other one. So you could have post-transplant bleeds that can be um, from pseudoaneurysms. And so that would be those, all transplant teams should always be informed. At least that's our practice here to make sure they're involved. So. You you had been talking about patients who are relatively stable, and I do think that uh, that this bears a little bit of expanding upon the enemy of very good is perfection. Yeah. What what is a blood pressure in an, in a sick patient that you're emergently assessing sure. that you think is good that I also want to think is good because I want to get things back to normal, but. Yeah. What are you looking for as a good blood pressure? Great question. So the ACG, the American College of Gastroenterology, and the Canadian Association of Gastroenterology recently had these guidelines on a reversal of anticoagulation. And they used, um, so we were also separately a group of gastroenterologists, emergency room physicians, and ICU consultants trying to do a Delphi to assess what is significant to GI bleeding. And it's really hard. There isn't a really good definition of it. Uh, what the ACG CAG group used was actually derived from cardiology literature that's 20 years old when they were talking about what mm. threshold do you use to decide how, whether you anticoagulate for a cardiac procedure or not. So for me, I think of how much is the change from their baseline. If they're normally 120 to 130 person, for that person 90 to 100 systolic blood pressure, it's a 20 millimeter drop in average that's a significant drop for me. But if you're a cirrhotic, you're always at 90 to 100, or maybe you know, maybe as low as 85. So if you come in now at 85, and you have a little bit of coffee ground, to me, that's not a massive GI bleed. Mm -hmm. you know, so I think that's that change from baseline to me for systolic blood pressure. Tachycardia is another hard one, because what do you, you know, where do you decide is tachycardic for you versus not? Um, there, I think orthostatics helps me. So I will often have even my GI bleed team fellows come and do an orthostatics on the patient because if that's a change that tells you that your body is not used to it, because with the beta blocker use, you really don't know where you're starting off, and that's so rampant now. So I'd just say an orthostatic assessment is really helpful. And if you're dropping with that, or you're, rather your heart rate is going up with the and your pressure's dropping, that tells me that this is more of an acute change. Your body's not had a chance to get used to that, and so that is conveys a sense of urgency to me. That's really in, helpful. The hemoglobin, tough call, sorry. It's just really hard because, you know, you have, 
where did they start are you drawing it at the right time have they had a chance to equilibrate yet you know you're pushing blood in on one side because the patient's unstable and drawing the hemoglobin on the other so that's a difficult one obviously our guidelines is you know better than i do less than 7 you know if they're normal less than 8 and you should transfuse you really want to avoid over transfusion so we do see sometimes the massive transfusion protocol because the patient is unstable but then when we go back in when you over transfuse that makes those varices remember there's more blood in the circulating system so now they're even juicier and they bleed even more mm. so as an anecdote when i want to treat an actively bleeding varix and the patient's intubated and in the icu i'll have the icu team increase the propofol and drop the controlled in a controlled manner we're dropping the systemic pressure because that will immediately drop the portal pressure and it'll slow down from just flowing where i can't see the rent to slowing down enough that i can treat it you know we had Justin Croyder on our show yeah. a bit ago to talk in general about when to transfuse. Sure. And one of the things I took away from that conversation was that these numbers, you know, anemia in a person with coronary artery disease, etc., yeah. all these different thresholds, he asked us to stop thinking so much of those as protocols yeah. and more if the patient is symptomatic correct um and we can't keep up or what not yeah. then to transfuse and would you see it the same way in this situation even if yes. their hemoglobin is 7.5 but they're symptomatic we might Absolutely. proceed and if yeah. it's 6.5 and they're really well maybe yeah. we don't do anything for them yeah i think if it, if they have any comorbidities i tend to veer at least to 7 And the other reason for that is anesthesia will not sedate a patient with a hemoglobin of less than seven. Hmm. So if you don't uh, get them, interesting. Yeah, they won't. Is that on it. your procedural sedation checklist? <laughs> It's not on mine, but I, maybe yeah. it should be. I well, ask them for a semi-elective case. Yeah. I mean, for right. emergencies, obviously they'll do what you have to do, but they'll want the blood running anyway. Yeah. So there, for our elect, we have a large anesthesia practice, and yeah. their cutoff is seven. So they'll okay. want you to be a hemoglobin of seven. um as a no, in a normal condition and so i'd say that if they're less than 7 even if they look really good which you know people walk in at 4.5 right mm-hmm. all the yeah. time yeah. and so when i say all the time i mean i get those calls so there's not all the time <laughs> people, i see that often yep. and they and they're fine right. so i don't know that you need to emergently transfuse them but if you're anticipating that you're going to need an endoscopy i can't sedate for the pa- I, we have a, a practice that requires anesthesia sedation and that helps to control that that blood volume uh, when cool. when they're sedated and they're more vasodilated so they need a little bit more so i'd say less than 7 yes um to get that up to, to to that level but i agree with you you know treating the patient just based on a number is not a, a good way to handle it this is a great opportunity to review a few of the things we learned from dr croider in the transfusion episode which i highly recommend you listen to if you haven't but in general remember he had the slapped cheek model where if you imagine slapping yourself really hard in the face anytime you're dealing with somebody who's bleeding it'll remind you to check several things each finger is a different item first hemoglobin then platelets then pt then ptt and lastly fibrinogen the palm itself which unifies the fingers is the history and physical that we've spent a lot of time talking with Nina about in this case and then the numbness feeling that you get on your face from being hit is to remind you about hypocalcemia that these patients can have as you are transfusing them lastly we talked about teg the thromboelastogram and how when 
you have a situation with hemorrhage that is just chaotic and dirty, the tag can be helpful to guide the resuscitation, especially if you can watch the tag unfold in real time rather than wait for the entire result to come out. So hopefully that helps here. In addition, I think the keys that I took away from listening to Nina was that in the case of a patient who's going to have a procedure such as endoscopy, making sure that we've resuscitated their blood volume appropriately so that they can safely have anesthesia, accounting for some vasodilation and any intraprocedural bleeding that may occur would be very helpful. But in general, transfusing to certain numeric thresholds is not recommended unless there are symptoms or in this case, a procedure that warrants that. Okay, let's jump back in. I think what you described about uh, the varices plumping up is so interesting. When I was a senior resident, my last ICU rotation, I remember we had a bad variceal bleed and I, uh, we were doing, an, uh, the GI proceduralist was working with the patient and I was trying to optimize hemodynamics and I was trying to get the map higher or Hi, I was trying to get, it, get yeah. it to a place that felt more comfortable to me. And they were saying, no, I want a systolic of 90. I want to, I want to keep things a little bit lower because we're going to be popping off anything that's clotting. You're going to be kicking those clots off. And it's a little bit kind of things that you can see that we yeah. don't. Sure. Um, uh, for me, I'm seeing a monitor and hemodynamics and you're seeing uh, a varix that's bulging up in front of you. And so that's very interesting. But I think it's, you know, in the days when we used to come down and treat patients in the ED here, that would have been important. From your standpoint where you are, I'm not ready with my scope yet. So you got to manage what you have to manage. But then when I'm in there and ready to go, that's when we'll drop it. Just uh, drop the systolic pressure so we can really see what's going on. Totally makes sense. Well, let me ask, should we be allowing some moderate hypotension to minimize ongoing bleeding? in general, if the patient can tolerate it? If the patient can tolerate it, and if they're known, you know, again, I think a, a large amount of confusion that we see in our satellite centers is the patient came in with a, you know, blood pressure of 88, over, so transfusion was started, and cirrhotics live there, right. you know. The, so I think that's really important to understand. Consider that their they baseline. Don't, that's their baseline. Um, and they're almost always on beta blockers, so they won't mount a response. Right. But that's okay. You know, if there's if they're compass mentis, so to speak, and they're okay, then you don't need to transfuse to get them super high. Because you're right, sometimes you will then increase the pressure enough that you might have you might have formed a fibrin plug, but now you're increasing the pressure so high that that plug opens up again. So we had talked about a lot of interventions. The one that I wanted to make sure we addressed also that Venk taught me about when I was a resident was antibiotics. Um, yeah, great question. In the context of a patient who's uh, a GI bleed patient, I, the first really bad GI bleed patient, I was a resident under Vank, and he said, you've forgotten something, uh, a dose of ceftriaxone. Mm-hmm. What, is, what is that doing for our patient? So only indicated in cirrhotics, uh, and it, what it does is it decreases the translocation of bacteria and the in, uh, risk of spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. And it's been shown in multiple RCTs to have uh, improved mortality. So it's important. But again, it's not the first thing you need to do. You know, but the patient's already bleeding. They've already got translocation. So you're preventing SBP during the first few hours. If you got that dose of antibiotics in, that's fine. And that's both upper and lower GI bleeding. 
technically the studies were done for variceal bleeding okay. in patients with cirrhosis. But if a cirrhotic develops lower GI bleeding and they're decompensated. So that's the other part. Do they have known ascites? Are they decompensated? If they are, I would recommend you still give it. Okay. A single dose won't hurt them, uh, but might prevent a, a further complication. Along those lines, are there other medication considerations for lower GI bleeding? We spend a lot of time on the yeah. upper. What can we do for lower GI bleeds? Nothing. You can control the uh, anticoagulation if it's otherwise indicated. So if the patient doesn't have an active PE or something that you can con- reverse, that that would be ideal. Um, I don't usually recommend giving large volumes of vitamin K because what happens is the patient then, especially if the bleeding is relatively self-controlled and we are able to treat it, now the patient has to have like two weeks to get all that vitamin K out and get them back up to therapeutic doses. So, um, you know, if you can treat it with FFP or if the pa- if the patient can tolerate the transfusion or um, low doses of vitamin K, that's pe- preferable. Excellent. This is Vank jumping in. Certainly, in addition to vitamin K and FFP, we should also be considering prothrombin complex concentrates and then... There are also some drug-specific reversal agents, and forgive me, the generic name I just can't pronounce for this, but Praxbind for, say, Pradaxa. Lastly, I'm always thinking about some much older practices such as DDAVP or vasopressin when a patient has uremia and bleeding, I'm told can improve the expression of von Willebrand's factor. The data is from the 90s and maybe even earlier on some of this. So it's unclear how efficacious that is. And I certainly wouldn't get in the way of other more proven therapies. But if you're in a bind and you need help trying to get hemostasis, there are some other considerations that you might be able to use. Back to the show. One more quick thought that when you have lower GI bleeding, if the patients are males or less likely in women but have had pelvic radiation, radiation proctitis can bleed quite significantly especially if they're anticoagulated again. So that's just something to keep in mind. Um, you're going to admit the patient, they're going to get a colonoscopy anyway, but that should be on your differential. Is the sex difference mainly because we're talking about more radiation for prostate cancers Correct. in men? It's and not the a- prostate is right behind the rectum. So they have very localized radiation there. Got it. Yeah. Okay. I'd heard you mention something in passing as you were trying to diagnose an upper versus a lower GI bleed that I had seen mentioned, but I don't know a lot about. You You, had, you said, yeah, I'm looking through the labs and I see the BUN. Mm-hmm. And um, tell me a little bit more about that. Uh, how is how is the BUN factoring in to, uh, to the call you're getting from your fellow yeah. or from me uh, in a smaller ED in the middle of the night? Sure. So in a patient who has normal creatinine, the BUN should be quite low. So Blood is it contains a large amount of protein. So if it's coming from the higher upper GI tract, that blood will get broken down in the small bowel and get absorbed, leading to an increase in BUN. The Remember, all GI absorption occurs in the small bowel. Only fluid is absorbed in the colon. No, no protein, no carbohydrate, nothing is absorbed in the colon but fluid. And so if you have a BUN that's normal in a normal creatinine patient, the chance of it being an upper GI bleed that's brisk, uh, sorry, an upper GI bleed is less likely. If it's a super brisk bleed, you have a dulafoy and there's no chance for the body to absorb it, then it might be different. But most cases, it's still at least mildly elevated. Uh, if you have abnormal creatinine or elevated creatinine to begin with, then it's kind of a moot test because the BUN in those patients begins at about 45 to 60. It runs in that level at baseline. So if there's no significant change, that doesn't help me. 
other unique considerations I was curious about. If the patient has a history of Crohn's disease or ulcerative yeah. colitis, how, if at all, does that change your approach to their care? Sure. So Crohn's disease or either condition, I think one thing I might consider is making sure that the patient has no perianal pain because the Crohn's disease patients can develop perianal abscesses or or significant fissures. And so if there's a lot of pain and there might be a little bit of bleeding with it, but then we tend to focus on the bleeding and it's actually the abscess that's the problem. So those patients really need an MRI of the pelvis or a colorectal surgeon to come and look at them and see if they can drain that. Um, if they have ulcerative colitis, if they're really poorly controlled or they're in a bad flare, they'll present with bleeding. You, you probably see that quite often. Uh, in those patients, I'd say the first thing you want to make sure, even though you know they have UC and they're in a flare and they're telling you they're in a flare, make sure there's no concomitant infection. So send a path panel uh, because they can often get secondary infections, including C. diff, which can cause their flare to be more severe. But those patients really should be admitted. Um, they very rarely have exsanguinating bleeds uh, or significant bleeds. They're usually more dehydrated. They're more, you know, they don't feel good. Um, they might have fevers and they have blood in every stool. Uh, but they don't usually, almost always they can go to the floor. Very rarely, I mean, I don't think in many years have I seen an ICU patient with a Crohn's or an IBD flare requiring admission for that for a bleeding reason. So they don't tend to bleed fast, but they do tend to bleed otherwise. The only other condition I'll tell you that can bleed quite large, significantly is malignancy. So tumor bleeds can happen um, in the esophagus, sometimes in uh, the stomach, and rarely in the colon, but they can bleed quite significantly. And so if you do have a patient with a known cancer history, that might be someone that you'd put in the hospital. I don't they don't usually have arterial bleeds. They just ooze from the surface of the tumor throughout. And so we actually have now a relatively newer medication of the last few years called the hemostatic spray that we can apply. But eventually they end up requiring radiation mm -hmm. to decrease that tumor burden. So the patients should still be admitted. We do a procedure and then they go to radiation. I uh, unfortunately had a, a case of this uh, fairly recently and uh, it, the, the tumor resulted in an aortic uh, fistula, mm -hmm. aortoesophageal fistula. And so uh, it was unclear what was happening directly at the time. But in terms of medical management of those kind of catastrophes, are, are there any other, you know, medications I'm going to give other than reversal in blood? Are for a tumor that you're describing, are things like a Minnesota tube helpful? No. Or probably very harmful if I'm just pushing on something blindly. Yeah. No, never a Minnesota tube unless it's documented variceal bleeding or yeah. really high suspicion of variceal bleeding. Um, aortoesophageal fistulas are almost, I mean, they're very high risk of fatality. Yeah. The one other thing we didn't talk about is when you think about enterovascular fistulae are uh, abdominal aortic repairs. So when they have uh, grafts there, they can, again, get close to the uh, the distal duodenum or the proximal jejunum and develop um, aortoduodenal fistulae. And so in those cases, you really need, again, cross-sectional imaging. I'm sure you diagnose that on a CT as well. Um, we have gone in endoscopically to try and either put a stent in to just kind of tamponade until they can get to surgery because that's the ultimate treatment. Similarly, for the duodenum, it's just a diagnostic. We don't. There's nothing really we can do endoscopically, but they might have a herald bleed and then come in with that bleed, and you see that, and 
the vascular surgeons, because it's such an involved surgery, will still want us to go in. And those are cases we sometimes will come in in the night to do, where we'll just go in and say, yep, I can see the stent, it's eroding through, and we'll pull out and, and they'll go to surgery. But again, part of that history is, is thinking about those, anything that they've had from a surgical standpoint. If this is likely the abdominal aorta involved, do either of you see value in Reboa um, or any of the, do you know what I'm talking no, about? No, I don't Reboa? know what Reboa is. Resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta. You're putting like a Minnesota tube in the aorta. I've been, I've been begging. With IR. No, oh. it's our, us I'm and surgery somebody. doing it, but oh, I've, I've never begging done this. Vank to let me do a Reboa episode for the longest time because like this, there are so many theoretical things <laughs> where I think a Reboa could do that. And then Venk looks at me and shakes his head and says, We should never do not. that. <laughs> and so, but. so we do a different version for gastric varices treatment called okay. a BRTO uh, balloon occlusion, retrograde transvenous balloon occlusion of the oh. uh, splenic vein, renal vein, oh. to inject. It's a very complicated yeah. GI procedure. But. So I shouldn't just try it no, no. Uh, while I'm you placing my Minnesota tube. It's only Jim Andrews and a few interventional radios. Okay. After the discussion, I went to PubMed, and there are a scattering of case reports in the surgery literature, the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, for example, that talk about the use of Reboa for very specific life-threatening gastrointestinal bleeding conditions. It certainly is not a standard that's universally applied, but it does seem like it is a Hail Mary option for those most dire situations. Hey everyone, this is Alex jumping in after the interview. We talked a little bit about low-risk scoring systems, the Glasgow-Blatchford uh, index, but additionally, you might be trying to decide which patients need the ICU or which patients are really sick. There was a great American Journal of Emergency Med article from September of 2021 called The Use of Age Shock Index in Determining Severity of Illness in Patients Presenting to the ED with GI Bleeding. I encourage you to read the whole study, but really it was trying to give you a metric at the bedside, which is shock index. Remember, it's the heart rate over the systolic blood pressure, but then also trying to incorporate an age into that, especially for our geriatric patients who are struggling with a GI bleed. And so they took the shock index and multiplied by age and found that with a cutoff of 45.12, those patients were found to be much sicker and would, would lead you to admit the patient to the ICU or follow them much more closely. And so read the paper, check it out. Back to the interview. Uh, another unique situation that I'm curious your thoughts mm -hmm. are, on patients who have had previous complicated surgeries distantly, like mm -hmm. Whipple's and gastric sure. bypass, how does that change your approach to thinking about their GI bleeding? Sure. So I'm always, um, let's start maybe with the upper GI gastric bypass. One, if they've had a ruin by gastric bypass, I'm thinking the commonest complaint there or complication, if you will, is a ulcer an anastomotic ulcer. So from a GI bleeding standpoint, they can get quite significant bleeds. They sometimes can develop a pseudoaneurysm at that anastomotic area, but they first should really still have an EGD 
So I would say unless they again, I think the rule of thumb in this discussion that's playing out is just if they're really unstable, get some sort of imaging so that we can guide therapy. But if they're not, with a ruin Y, you also can have ulcers in the excluded stomach. And that's why, so there's, there's the root pouch and then the excluded stomach. But if you get imaging and it shows me that the bleed is in the excluded stomach, I can tell you immediately the patient should go straight to IR because I can't reach the excluded stomach easily. It's a, it's a two-hour-long, very involved, retrograde, double-balloon procedure to get there. So it's, it takes a lot of effort. It's not an EGD I can set up. We don't, we don't have the capacity to do those overnight or on the weekends. So if, this, if you have a patient with a Roux-en-Y anatomy who's unstable, get an a, a exam to make sure that if it's at the anastomotic area, I can come and look at that. But if it's in the excluded stomach, straight to IR. That might be someone you get surgery involved in too, because if it's a significant bleed, they might have to go to surgery. So I might get their opinion real time. But that case, a CT is helpful. If they've had a Whipple, much less likely. But the other thing I'm thinking about is when you have a Whipple anatomy, you now have alternate bile duct to small bowel and pancreas duct to small bowel uh, anastomoses, and rarely you can develop varices at those sites. They don't tend to develop ulcers, but you can have a varix that forms, and so that's something that I'm thinking about. Have they had, is there something abnormal? It also helps me to plan what procedure and what scope I might need. So I might choose to use a longer scope if I know it's a for example, a pylorus-preserving whipple, which means that I have to go through the stomach and in deeper into the small intestine. So I might plan to start with a colonoscope that goes through the mouth, which is longer than the upper scope. Um, similarly, if they have, you know, known tracheal uh, or an Ivor Lewis or something here, that helps me as well. It also helps me decide what anesthesia I want to ask for the patient because someone with uh, Y anatomy, I might have be more likely to get general anesthesia for my procedure and intubate them, protect their airway, as opposed to a, a, a stomach that has, for example, a duodenal ulcer bleed does not always require intubation. If you do that NG lavage like we talked about and the NG lavage was clear and I'm suspecting a duodenal bleed, I can do that under max sedation because I'm, I'm not going to be so worried about stuff coming up in, into the esophagus. It's post-pyloric. I can treat it easy. So that those are sort of maybe not as much as relevant, but also factors in your daily practice that can help. That's very, very helpful. Yeah. I've learned, I've learned so much. It's this fantastic. Is, uh, yeah. The order of things I do, <laughs> new diagnoses, new words. This is... You, you can't wait to use hemosuckers. Yes. Yeah. 100%. That's my learning. I'm going to teach you. Uh, have every you not chart, heard of this? Every chart's going to walk out of either this? present or absent. Yeah. <laughs> Consider. Consider. Yeah. Well, if they just left and everyone did a really good rectal exam, yeah. that would be a great exactly. start. Yeah. Exactly. That's yep. the GI fellow goal. So. <laughs> this really was wonderful. Yeah. Any final things you... We didn't ask you, but you wish... Emergency physicians or emergency medicine new sure. that you want to leave us with? No, thanks. First of all, Alex and Venk for the opportunity. This was great fun to, to chat about. I'd say the uh, things that I would request are to not do fecal occult blood testing. Sometimes it's can be traumatic for the patient. It really doesn't change the outcome of the management and is an unnecessary test. And, and and I think maybe if I had to add a couple more, you know, as you're resuscitating, let your gastroenterologist know um, what's going on. Try to help uh, the gastroenterologist and you figure out 
how acute this is based on the patient's presentation. I think that's really the biggest deciding factor. And what I'm thinking of when I get a call is how urgent is this? And having all these different parts of the history, um, surgical history, and then you know med medications uh, are really helpful. So, And these are factors that as you call your consult, if you gave these relevant features, would make that decision much easier too. Wowza. Boy, did we get down and dirty in this chapter. By the way, isn't Nina so great? Let's take a moment to review what we've just heard over the past 90 minutes. We need to take time to get a good history of not just the bleeding, but also the background events leading up to the bleeding. Learn about what other medications, such as NSAIDs or DOACs, the patient is taking or was exposed to recently. Also, examine their medical history, such as do they have inflammatory bowel disease, have they had previous aortic surgery, malignancies, recent procedures such as ERCP, liver biopsy, or a history of necrotizing pancreatitis, all of that can be very helpful. On examination, focus on the vital signs, including calculating their age shock index, as Alex talked about, and consider orthostatic vital signs. Focus on change from prior vital signs and look for stigmata of undiagnosed liver disease, bleeding disorders, or other prior surgeries to, and do a careful rectal examination looking for hemorrhoids and fissures. Nina is hoping we can all agree to get rid of the stool guaiac testing in our practice because it has a lot of false negatives and false positive test characteristics and the data bears this out. Think about whether the bleeding is likely to be upper or lower in source. If Is there melana or an elevated BUN from baseline? If these are the case, that suggests an upper GI source. If there's hematochesia, normal or low BUN, or the patient's not too unstable, this is likely to be a lower GI source. If suspecting an upper GI source, keep in mind that there are esophageal causes, gastric causes, and causes within the small intestine, such as esophageal varices, aortoesophageal fistulae, gastric ulcers, dulafoy lesions, tumors, post-ERCP bleeding, and Alex's favorite, hemosuccus pancreaticus, among many others. If your patient is unstable, remember that in addition to giving blood products, try to get the proton pump inhibitor in earlier rather than as an afterthought. Octreotide is helpful to reduce bleeding from esophageal varices. CT angiography is helpful in unstable patients, as is nasogastric lavage. In fact, the lavage and erythromycin can help reduce mortality in patients with upper GI bleeding who are undergoing EGD urgently. Also, when thinking about unstable variceal bleeding, if we are reaching for the Minnesota tube, remember to estimate the depth measure before inserting it. The average adult is 40 centimeters to the stomach, and we should add an additional 10 centimeters to the depth estimation to ensure that the gastric bulb is in the stomach before we inflate it. This will help us to prevent rupturing the esophagus in the process of trying to help the patient. Lastly, don't overinflate the balloons as this can cause pressure necrosis. When considering which patients with upper GI bleeding to admit, don't forget the glasgow Blatchford score, which is if less than or equal to one, has a 96 to 99% negative predictive value for identifying patients who are unlikely to have complicated courses, including the need for transfusion, re-bleeding, urgent procedures, other concerning outcomes, or even, of course, death. This can help us to know which patients we can safely discharge to the outpatient arena for continued evaluation. Once we go below the ligament of trites, we are into the territory of lower GI bleeding. We need to think about diverticular bleeding. 
hemorrhoidal bleeding, malignancy, radiation proctitis, aortoenteric fistulae, and IBD-related bleeding. We again focus on optimizing hemodynamics with mindfulness to not overcorrect. We will get CT angiography or triple phase scans for patients with instability or suspected diverticular bleeding, and this represents most of the patients. This is most helpful closest to the active bleeding because it can guide the endoscopists as to where to focus their attention, which would be very difficult if somebody has a lot of diverticuli and we don't know where to tell them. If the patient is unstable and there's active bleeding on CT, interventional radiology may be a helpful resource to call because there's never a possibility for immediate colonoscopy. The earliest time a colonoscopy can, can be done is after rapid prep, which takes a minimum of three hours. Amazing. There is so much that we will be able to take to our shifts immediately and hopefully save a life. We hope that you've enjoyed this chapter of Always on EM, an emergency medicine podcast from Mayo Clinic. Please don't forget to subscribe to our show so you never miss the great content we have to offer. And lastly, as I told my kids on their drop-off at school for their first day of the academic year, try your best, learn a lot, be a good friend, and have so much fun. Talk to you next time. The Always On EM Podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda.